You are now listening to the January 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, grace upon grace, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. When one becomes a believer of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of meaning behind it. It means one's identity and values have changed. There's also a change in action and a change from death to life. In the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, When anyone believes in Jesus Christ, one becomes a new creation. A new creation doesn't mean a small change from the past. A new creation means a newly made person. Therefore, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says the old is gone and the new is here. This means when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, then the values in our lives change as well. Based on the values, actions will also change. It seems obvious, right? If one is born as a new creation from Christ, but thinks and acts the same way as the past, then how can one be called a new creation? That person would just be the same person as in the past. Such a person hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. How about you? After believing in Jesus Christ, have your thoughts and actions changed? Are those biblical changes? We'll look at a few Bible verses and see the first change that happens when one moves from the past life to a changed life. John the Baptist, who was preparing for Jesus to come, was urging people to repent near the Jordan River. It's because heaven was near. He spread the message to the people about starting to prepare to be one who would be able to enter into heaven. We'll look at Luke chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, and see what John the Baptist was telling them to do. Let's read these verses together. The axe is already lying at the roots of the trees. All the trees that don't produce good fruit will be cut down. They will be thrown into the fire. Then what should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has extra clothes should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has extra food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, John told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? John replied, Don't force people to give you money. Don't bring false charges against people. Be happy with your pay. Think about the message from John the Baptist that we just read. What is he warning about that will happen? Yes, in verse 9, he said the axe is already lying at the roots of the trees. All the trees that don't produce good fruit will be cut down. They will be thrown into the fire. He was proclaiming the message of judgment. The people who heard John the Baptist's message of judgment asked what they should do to avoid judgment and not be cut down and to be thrown into the fire. What did John the Baptist say in response? He said anyone who has extra clothes should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has extra food should do the same. What about the tax collectors? John the Baptist told the tax collectors to not collect any more than they were required to. As you know, The tax collectors of that time 
collected tax from the people and gave them to the Roman government. However, during this process, the tax collectors gathered more than the fixed tax by adding their gain. Then they took the additional amount as their own gain. John the Baptist told them to not do such a thing, but only gather the tax that the Roman government has set and do what was assigned. What did he tell the soldiers? He told the soldiers to not force people to give them money, to not bring false charges against the people, and to be happy with their pay. What is John the Baptist telling all these people to do? He's telling them to get only the amount they needed. He told them not to be greedy and try to gain more. He told them to be happy with what was given to them. Why is that? It's so one would not be cut down and thrown into the fire in the coming judgment. What is the opposite of this? It means if one is greedy and tries to gain more than what was allowed by either cheating, extorting, not sharing, and not being satisfied, then one will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who are cut down and thrown into the fire symbolize those who aren't saved. Through the word of John the Baptist, do you know the difference between those who aren't saved and those who are? Yes, those who aren't saved are greedy. They're not satisfied with what they have and try to gain more. They gather more than they need. They do not share what they have. If you evaluate yourself based on John the Baptist's standards, then do you appear to be a saved person? If not, then this is a serious matter. We all know about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Through Jesus Christ, he was saved and his thoughts and actions suddenly changed. Let's look at what kind of change came about. Let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stood up. He said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of what I own to those who are poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back. I will pay back four times the amount I took. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to your house. You are a member of Abraham's family line. The Son of Man came to look for the lost and save them. Luke chapter 9 verse 2 introduces Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector and very rich. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and very rich. This tells us how he made money and became rich. Tax collectors represented sinners of that time, and he was the chief of them. Jesus came to him, called his name, and stayed at his house. Then change came upon him. What kind of change? Until now, he was called a sinner, but he still took money from his own people and accumulated wealth. He wasn't satisfied with what he had and tried to gain more. Then a change came upon his values towards his wealth. He no longer had an attachment to his wealth. He proclaimed that he would give half of his wealth to the poor. Then he said, if he cheated anybody out of anything, he would pay back four times the amount he took. Everything John the Baptist said about the actions of a saved person happened to him. What does this say? It means Zacchaeus was saved from being cut down and thrown into the fire. When Zacchaeus said this to Jesus, how did Jesus reply? In Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and said, Today salvation has come to your house. This is the grace of salvation. 
a person who has their eyes set on the divine things in heaven doesn't have greed in the things of this world that will rot and disappear. It's because they saw something better, more important, and more valuable. I often see homeless people sleeping on the street, covered with newspaper in boxes. It's because they block the cold. If I lived in such conditions, then whenever I see some good newspaper or box, then I would gather them. It's because I need to use them. However, if I were to go into a nice home tomorrow night and I could live there forever with a nice blanket and eat good food, what would I do today? Would I still gather newspaper and boxes and look in trash cans to look for food to eat tomorrow? No, I wouldn't. If I were to live in such a house starting tomorrow, then I would only collect newspaper and boxes to cover myself today and only collect food to eat today. It's because I wouldn't need them tomorrow. In fact, they would only become a burden. I would have to throw them away tomorrow. Therefore, I would give the newspaper, boxes, and food I collected to other people. I would tell them to use them and eat the food. As ones who are saved, have your thoughts and actions towards wealth changed? Have the conditions that John the Baptist mentioned appear in your lives? As you consider this, I hope you will take a moment to evaluate yourself. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Biblical Stewardship. Goodbye.
is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is tip or sacrifice. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. And Mark chapter 12 gives us an account of one of those times when he was people watching. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Actually, it could be translated, watch how the people were putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. A little bit of context. This is the holiday. The Feast of Passover is happening. Jews from all over the world are required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast population of the city of Jerusalem, some say went from something like 600,000 to a million. People were camped all around the outside of Jerusalem, looked like a big campground. Every room in town was rented out. Every relative's house was full with relatives from around the world as people were there worshiping God. And they had requirements that they had to fulfill at the temple. When we talk about going to the temple, nobody went in the temple except a few select priests. No, we would never go in. The temple isn't like a church you went to. But you would rather gather outside. There were courts in the temple. There were these beautiful esplanades and all. And so different things happened in these areas. And so you would always gather in these courts and these courtyards, huge courtyards. And so Jesus is in one of these courtyards. It was called the Court of the Women. And there in the courtyard where uh, this incident takes place was a place where there were 13 offering boxes, big offering chests. And this place was called the treasury. And so people would come and they would bring their offerings. And so you can imagine at this peak season with hundreds of thousands of people on the Temple Mount coming and going, terribly crowded, you can imagine the people that are there giving their required gifts and offerings to different, 13 different designations. So 
There's a lot of noise. I'll tell you why the noise wasn't just people talking. The way you put their money in was there was like these brass funnels. Think of a trumpet, a long trumpet. Brass funnels, white at the top, and a narrower pipe going down into the chest. And so when you pour your coins in, there was no paper money. Everything was coinage in the ancient world. You pour it in, it'd make some noise, wouldn't it? Can you just, I don't know how to describe the noise it would make, but can you at least just feel it with me? It's hard to, but if you poured a whole bunch of coins in a, in a brass funnel, it would make noise as the coins hit it and they're falling down and then they're hitting a bunch of coins in the bottom of the big offering chest. So everybody kind of on the page there? So in the midst of all of this, Jesus is watching people, okay? He's people watching. Of all the things he could be doing on this last week of his ministry is watching people give. I think that's significant. He says he watched people putting in money. Many rich people gave a lot. But what got Jesus' attention? Not the rich who were putting in their large sums of money. By the way, you know what we're told? The rich people would actually, rather than just put in a couple great big coins or they would cash them out for small little coins so that there would be more to pour in and more noise would be made. And, and of course, when that happened, people would stop and say, who's that? Oh, look at that generous, godly, pious person, right? What got Jesus' attention was not that kind of a show, but something else. No big fanfare. His attention was riveted on, on a poor woman a widow woman, verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. This lady, you guys, wasn't just poor. The Greek actually says she was poverty stricken. She was the poorest of the poor. Apparently she had nobody to take care of her, no relatives, no friends. She was on her own, probably begging. And she comes and and she offers two small copper coins, tiniest form of currency. They were worth about a quarter of a penny a piece. They were enough to buy three grapes, put it into perspective. And it was this small gift that got Jesus' attention. In fact, you know, in the midst of all the noise and all of that, I don't know, what do you think if you cut a penny into to four pieces and you put two in, what kind of a sound would that even make? Do you think you'd even hear it? Jesus called the boys. Hey, come here, come here, as he saw the woman approaching. I want you guys to see this. And Jesus says, you know what? This woman's giving more than all the contributions that are given here today. What? Now, the con- I wonder if the woman felt a little bit embarrassed by everything. I mean, she's just coming in, she's poor, she's... That's this little bit. Do you think some of the Pharisees might have, religious leaders might have rolled their eyes? I don't know how that played out. But if we look at this story in context, you're going to notice that a few verses earlier in Mark 12, 38, Jesus called out the rich scribes and religious leaders and the religious teachers for getting rich by duping widows out of their money. Religious leaders use their positions to dupe widows out of money, to rip people off. It's a sad thing if somebody uses their spiritual position to rip people off. Jesus hated that. He railed against that kind of behavior. What Jesus was observing was too important for his disciples to miss. So he calls them and he looked and he said, look at how much this woman is giving. It's more than all of the the gifts that have been given by anybody else. How can this be? Well, the last thing the Lord does, I got to thinking about this. This is really interesting. I always thought the last thing Jesus did really in the temple was he cleansed the temple. That's the last thing he did. Second time he cleansed it. You know what I'm saying? He ran out the money changers and threw over their tables because they made the courtyard of the Gentiles. He turned that in kind of a shopping mall and Jesus cleared all that out. I thought, okay, that's the last thing. No, the last thing he did in the temple was to sit there 
at the treasury and watch how people gave. That's the last thing he did in the temple. Apparently, it was kind of important to him. Why is it important? Because the Lord knows that giving is an indication of spiritual health. He was really taking the spiritual pulse of his people. It's what he was doing. How people give to God is an important indication of spiritual health. Really, really is an indication of spiritual health. Because giving or lack of giving affects every area of your spiritual life. If it isn't there, there's a reason. And if it isn't there, there won't be other things there in a believer's life. Jesus talked a lot about money and money problems. And probably a fifth of all he taught was about money and money problems. And the only thing he talked more about is love. Did you know that? And this is interesting. I don't know if you know this, that the biggest cause for divorce in America now is not over sex or infidelity, it's over money. That's the biggest cause for divorce. That's why we need to get some financial help and we need to get uh, understanding how to do budgets and make budgets and I'm gonna do something about that this year. I think we just need to find out how we can get out of debt and we can you know, get financial principles together. They're gonna help us. Jesus talked about love and money. It's not all, but that's most of what he talked about. A lot of times we think, well, it doesn't matter whether I give or not. Who knows? It's between me and God. Yeah, that's the point. It's between you and God. That's the point. It's all about you and God. And the Lord watches how we give and if we give. Jesus also noticed the people who didn't give, who walked right by the treasury. I heard somebody say one time, and I think it's fair to say that a person's attitude towards the offering plate is an index of their spirituality. I think that's true. A person's attitude towards the offering plate, that's towards giving, is an index of their spirituality. Now, I didn't say how much you give, but your attitude towards giving is important. So Jesus watched what we give And what else is he looking for? He gives us several things that he wants to see when you give. I think of four from this story. Four things Jesus wants to see when you give. First of all, Jesus wants to see humility. I think this kind of offering box, noisy giving concept ran its course. I don't think that's ever what God intended. God didn't mean it to turn into that kind of a thing. You know, getting the attention as you give, people knowing what you do, that's really not humble. Most of the time, guys, just kind of keep it to yourself, all right? But then, of course, you say, well, that's between God and me, but you don't do anything. Now, that's a problem. But, you know, I think it's better that way. It's better for you. It's Yet, I'm going to say this, There are times when you're going to want to give and you want someone to know because you are so excited about it. And I have had people make an appointment. They say, Pastor Mark, I want to see you. They make an appointment. They come in and they say, we have a gift that we want to give to the church. We've tithed on this or we've had an inheritance or something that's happened. And this is more than we ever dreamed in our lives we could give to the Lord. And, you know, it'll be a substantial amount. And they'll start crying, I'll start crying just because they're excited and I'm so happy to see them have that opportunity because they're saying, we never thought we'd ever, I mean, that is cool. Share with me. I'd love to hear that. You got to share with somebody, right? I'm that kind of person. The widow was probably almost embarrassed to go up and didn't want anybody to see this. And Jesus says, you know, that's all right. I wish some of the rest of you would give that way because Does what you give impress God is the important thing, not whether or not it impresses me. Does it impress God? And that leads to the second thing that Jesus looks for when you give, and that is that Jesus looks for self-sacrifice when you give. Here's a simple way to understand this. Jesus was paying attention to the amount that people gave to God's kingdom work and determining if 
someone was giving a sacrifice or a tip. Did you hear that? It mattered to Jesus, not just how they gave, but if they gave. He is concerned about the money. He really is. I've heard some people read this passage and say, see, it doesn't matter what you give to God. This widow just threw in a couple of little coins. As long as you give something, that's enough. You are so clueless because that is not what this is teaching, is it, you guys? God is honored by a sacrifice and not by a dip. Now, the amount of the sacrifice is going to be relative based upon income. We understand that, right? Understand that? But Jesus knows those amounts. He knows that amount. And he knows if we are offering a sacrifice or just a tip. So that kind of tip is good. But do we tip God or do we sacrifice for God? Now, a sacrifice in this context, let's kind of define what I'm thinking about sacrifice. And I don't think God thinks of it the same way. Sacrifice would be a financial gift we will miss when it's gone. It's always been that way. What's a sacrifice? You take one of your sheep to the temple and you offer it as a sacrifice. Now you have one less sheep, right? And there are some things that you just do not have in your life because you're giving substantially to God. You're giving sacrificially to God. You're giving and you're giving something and you're going to miss it. I'm not talking about giving your mortgage payment as a sacrificial gift of worship to God's kingdom. It makes it hard to be self-sacrificing when you don't have it. And sometimes, you know, we get to church and it's like, oh, God. Sometimes we don't give because we forget to give. I got to say, I love to give. And it might be a good idea for you to think about putting your giving on auto, an auto pay where you set it up and just automatically money comes out, you know, every week. If you're on vacation, you haven't forgotten, or Disneyland didn't get your offering that, that time, you know. It's just always supporting the work of God, always giving to God, always putting Him first, not coming back and, oh, well, we'll give God a tip. We spent all of everything. You know, it does go counterintuitive. I got to tell you this. It does seem very counterintuitive to say, hey, we're tight on money and we give money to God. We need more money and we're giving money away. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive, hello? It really does. It seems crazy, frankly. Non-Christians go, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'll talk more about that in a minute. What are you doing? But we're determining, no, God's worth more than a tip. I'm not tipping God because, frankly, God wants sacrifice, King David understood that in 1 Chronicles 21. He wanted to build the temple for God. And God said, no, you can't build. And he says, your son Solomon will. And then David would say, well, can I buy this stuff? I want to buy all the material. I want to provide everything for it. And uh, I'll buy the land. And so where they decided to buy the temple was already owned by, uh, by the land, to build the temple on was already owned by a guy. And so King David went and he said, hey, I want to buy this from you. And the guy on the land said, oh, no, 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 I'll give it to you. I just, I'll give it to you. And David's response is very significant. The king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying what it is worth. I cannot take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not offer a burnt offering that has cost me nothing. So David gave Arana 600 pieces of gold. That's 50 pounds of gold worth over, I don't know, $200,000. That's crazy. David says, I know what sacrifice is, and I will not give, I will not re-gift the coupon that cost me nothing, or the gift card that I got and didn't cost me anything. Oh, I'll give that to the Lord. No, he says, I'm not going to give God something that I haven't paid for. I'm not going to give something that isn't a sacrifice. I'm not giving to God that which cost me nothing. Giving is about 80% giving $9 or a week or we'll have to say less in Arizona. That's a tip. A sacrifice is a gift we will miss. Just a question. What would you miss? 
when we give, Jesus doesn't count. He weighs. I think we need to let this story say to us what it said to Mark's original readers. We need to get it out of the page and have the widow stand in front of us and have Jesus stand over here and we really see what's going on. And I think we are pulling the dynamic out of this incident, don't you think? I think we're seeing exactly what was going on here, exactly what the disciples were hearing. Those who were giving all the collection that day, which had to be millions of dollars at that time with all the festival and everything, was not as much as that woman gave in terms of sacrifice because other people were giving out of what they wouldn't miss. But she came and she gave everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now God's not calling you to give everything you have. That's not the point. The point is sacrifice. God weighs the amount the sacrifice is about. Now, when we give, Jesus wants to see our love. I would say that's the second thing. He wants to see our humility. He wants to see sacrifice. And he wants to see our love. And that's why the widow gave, okay? She didn't give because there was no law. There was no Mosaic law that said you had to give your last two pennies. There was no law like that at all. God wouldn't expect that of That wasn't, she didn't have to. She did it because she loved God, okay? That's the reason. And that's the reason why we give. It's not a guilt trip. It shouldn't be because we hear nine bucks a week. Now, oh, let me say, if not you, if you have an income that is so small that $9 a week is a sacrifice and you feel it, amen, okay? Amen. Don't get me wrong, but that isn't the way it is for most of us. The way it is for most of us is we will wait until we have an abundance. And I'm telling you, that ain't going to happen because most of us don't have. Like, we're going to wait until we have enough money to have kids. Is that going to happen? No. We're going to wait. See, there's some things you just move ahead in faith. And so she, the motivation was love. For God so loved the world that he what? gave. Loving and giving, you can't separate. The, where there's the love, there's the giving. So Jesus, I want to see humility. He wants to see your sacrifice. He wants to see your love, and he, he wants to see your faith. Write it down. He wants to see your faith. This widow had definitely linked up to God in faith. I don't know what she was expecting, but I'm sure she was thinking God will take care of me. And you better believe with Jesus watching you, that woman probably fell into some amazing lottery and won it. Oops, can I say that? I don't know if that's cool or kosher, whatever. But somehow I am sure life turned around for her. Because Jesus says, you know, that woman, all the promises that I give to those who give and put me first, you've got it. And after his resurrection, I just wonder what happened. She had a link to God of faith. She exercised faith. She went, maybe anybody who had known her would have said, are you kidding me? You better keep that and hold on to that. That's all you've got. So counterintuitive, like I say. And yet she gave it all. Obviously, money's the stuff that we live on. We have to have money to live. So that's kind of goofball when people say, oh, the church shouldn't talk about money. What? Why? Maybe if you coerce people, you know, but there's no coercion. Is there coercion right now? No. Conviction? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Usually people get bugged by church talking about money. It's people who don't give. I don't get offended when anybody talks about money and spiritual walk because I give. You know what I'm saying? doesn't offend me. But if you don't give, and I say, some people only give nine bucks a week, and you've been giving less than that, and you're offended, you might need to be offended. Because that's not a sacrifice. That's a tip. Put it in perspective. It's a tip. Money's what we live with. We call it making a living, right? The church has to have money. You're sitting on chairs. Guess where they came from? Oh, they came from some place we had to buy them. 
They're clean because of the candle wax that gets on them every Christmas Eve. That costs money. Oh, the, the candles cost money and the holders cost money. I was just looking at that this week. Oh, the electricity. You know, the utility company doesn't say, you know, Calvary Phoenix, they're feeding the homeless. They have a huge prison ministry. Thousands of people they're taking care of. Oh, families are being changed. Lives are being changed. Oh, they're sending money around the world to help people. Oh, they're helping schools. Well, let's lower the rates. Are you kidding me? I won't tell you because we don't have enough paramedics around to pick you up. You will not believe it. Keeping the carpets clean. You want to come into a place where you won't be embarrassed to bring a friend, right? You don't even want to know the budget for the kids' snacks or for curriculum. It's expensive. You wouldn't want to know. Well, you shouldn't feed those kids. You go take care of children's ministry then, right? You go over there and you tell those little, they're like baby chicks, balls, vanilla wafers. You know what I'm saying? Right? What are you going to do? You know, in fact, this is how tuned in they are to their snacks. Last night, I was looking at the snacks, you know, and all the stuff we have for the kids, you know, cupboards full of this stuff. And one of the teachers came in, he was carrying a bunch of uh, glasses, cups, and I said, what you got? Oh, he says, last week we had to use smaller cups because we ran out of these big ones. And boy, did we hear from the kids. Where's the bigger ones? This doesn't hold as much. You see them walking out with, you know, can we have some to go, you know, right? Come on. The whole thing costs money. Everything you see costs money. You understand, right? It's not like greed. It's like, no, we want to be in a community and be able to do something. So it's all of us together. Now, some people give the ministries outside the church. Okay, but who feeds you? Somebody needs a meal, we go take that, but you know, that's the way we give. I'm saying, no, that's so hit and miss. You know, that's so hit and miss. You need to determine what's sacrifice for you, what's God telling you to do. Notice I'm not telling you what to do, but I think it's fair based on what we're reading and we're pulling out of the page and we're looking at to say, hey, ask yourself some questions. And, and this is what I want to ask. I want you to ask yourself this, why do I give? If you're giving because you have to or you feel like somebody's twisting your arm, you're giving grudgingly, stop. It's wrong motive. It's not a happy experience. I love to give. I love to give. It's the best part of the service for me. Did I say that Leslie has everything on bill pay? Did I say that? PayPal or whatever. Did I say that? No? Okay, she does. And everything except like the offering. She'd love to, but I said, no, 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 no. Let's write a check. That's why we have to have a checkbook. Let's write a check. I want to put it in myself. I'm Like I told you, I think it's good to have your offering set up, you know, like on, I do, like PayPal or whatever. I think that's good because it's always there. It's, you know, you're, except I'm not doing what I say. All right. Because I like to put it in. So she writes a check and then she puts in the offering envelope and she puts her name on it. And then she says, now, I've put it in your Bible. Don't lose it. Because there have been times when she said, that check never come through. Uh, Did you give it? Did you lose it? So now she'll say, don't lose it. It's in your Bible. And then Will will tell me, "Uh, the offering check is in your Bible, Mark. Have you given it? Yeah, I wonder. I gave it. Okay. I love to give, though. It's fun. All right. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, the word is hilarion in Greek, which is the word what? Hilarious. We should say jokes during the offering. He loves a hilarious giver. Why do we give? And then I would say the next question to ask yourself is this. How would Jesus value my gifts to him? Am I giving him the dollar store kind of stuff, you know, versus something of high quality? How would Jesus value what I give to him? Are you thinking about the value of what you give? I would ask myself, when I give, how much sacrifice is involved? Am I tipping or am I giving substantially, sacrificially? When I give, how much sacrifice is involved? This is stuff for you to think about. And then finally, when I give, how much faith is involved? Man, this gal, she is a model of faith for me. Anytime I'm about ready to complain, 
I'm looking at her and I'm saying, what do I have to say, huh? Why do we give? How would Jesus value my gifts to him? When I give, how much sacrifice is involved? When I give, how much faith is involved? Am I tipping God? Here's my $9. Golly, it's almost 40 a month, Lord. Questions to ask. Let's pray. Lord, you are leading us in a journey in this life, and one of the ways is having us be more dependent on you by giving you some of what we live on and then really trusting you to take care of us when we're living on less. You have never let anybody down. I've never heard that that's ever happened. Lord, I pray for every person here, for those who are and have given sacrificially and they've done that for years and and their hearts are just resonating with this. Ask that you continue to supply for them, bless them, take care of them. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling right now. Maybe their marriages are struggling because of finances. And I just pray that you'll help straighten things out there, protect them, and help them to learn principles that will help them. And I pray for those who right now are pretty convicted, having their world shaken up just a little here. I guess this is a safe place for that to happen. And thank you, Jesus, for the blessings that you pour out upon us, for the promises that you make to take care of those who are giving to you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.
You're now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting Google, Play Store, or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's program on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello listeners, this is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. Recently, I heard there is an increase in the cases of a road rage. Road rage is an aggressive driver with anger to retaliate against another driver who caused them to feel unsafe. The angry driver would get in front of the other driver's car and slam on the brakes or intentionally slow down to get in the way of the other driver. I happened to watch some of them being interviewed after they were caught road raging. When they were asked what caused them to retaliate on the driver who made them feel unsafe, most of them said it was because the other drivers intruded in their way and made them enraged and acting uncontrollable anger. Some others said they became enraged because the other drivers were driving too slowly. Though the reasons were not that serious, the other drivers driving caused these drivers to road rage. Why do you think people get enraged like this? When I think about it, even I react the same way sometimes for not so serious arguments when things seemed unreasonable, or when I feel I was being mistreated. What about you? Do you get enraged easily? Becoming enraged is basically an immediate reaction to an event. Such immediate reaction will most likely cause problems for us. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17, it says, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. And in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18, it says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but God is just the opposite. Many places in the Bible says that God is slow to anger. The children of God are supposed to resemble God's character. That is why God trains and tempers His children so they can resemble the characteristics of God. When we are able to control our rage and act emotionally through training, the Bible says we have achieved gentleness. The Hebrew word anav translated as gentleness in the Old Testament comes from the word ana, which means cause to fall on knees or torment. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 seems to describe this word very well. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with a manna, which you did not know, nor did your father know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Here the word humbled is ana in Hebrew. So, in order to train the people of Israel, God lowered them, caused them to fall on their knees, made them go hungry, and fed them with a manna, when they were hungry, to make them obedient, to make them gentle. In the English dictionary, the definition of a gentleness is the quality of being kind, tender, or mild-mannered. So the opposite of a gentleness could be roughness or brutality. But in the Bible, gentleness means being humbled, lowering oneself, or having been tamed. So the opposite of gentleness is not roughness or brutality, but untamed or being in uncontrollable state. Therefore, the gentleness is the controllable state in which people do not react no matter what the situation is and follow God's will in deep contemplation. There is a story I heard some time ago. I heard that the rank of the lieutenant colonel is pretty high in the military, 
they're assigned chauffeurs and their wives are dressed as ma'am and treated with respect. But I heard the story of the wife of a retired lieutenant colonel who suffered from depression and committed suicide. She always had been addressed as ma'am and treated with high respect. But after her husband retired, people stopped addressing her as a ma'am. She fell into depression after realizing that people were not treating her with the same respect anymore. She thought she would always be and remain as ma'am, but the reality was not so, and she could not bear how different her expectation and the reality were. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 in King James Version tells us not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In NASB Version, it is translated as not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We give ourselves more credit than we actually deserve, but because God knows we are like that, He tempers us to lower ourselves, to humble ourselves. There is someone in the Bible who went through the training of being humbled and not reacting right away. It's Moses. His story starts from Exodus chapter 2. The story of how he was born, how he was changed by the Lord's training, and how he was used by the Lord is recorded in detail from Exodus to Numbers. Moses lived as the son of the princess of Egypt, the nation with the greatest power, until he was 40 years old. He knew he had power and authority. But when Moses killed an Egyptian, for the man was beating a fellow Israelite, and when Pharaoh find out about it, Moses ran away. He realized that he didn't have enough power or authority to kill someone. Moses went from being the son of a princess to a murderer and a fugitive. Then he became the son-in-law of the priest of Midian and lived as a shepherd for 40 years. He was reduced to a shepherd of a small Midian clan from being the prince of the great nation Egypt. How do you think Moses had changed after 40 years? He was hesitant to accept God's calling of doing great things through him, saying, No, Lord, I am not an enough of man to carry out such a great task. He had gotten to know himself and became humbled in the past 40 years, and that was when God could use him. In later time, when Miriam and Aaron blamed him for marrying a Cushite woman, and questioned him about the Lord using only him as a prophet, we could see that he did not react in rage. In Numbers chapter 12, Moses did not become angry or condemn them despite their accusation. The Bible described Moses' character succinctly when Miriam and Aaron accused him. It is said in Numbers chapter 12 verse 2 that, Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses did not become angry and did not act on his emotion. He left everything entirely to the Lord God. Instead, he asked God to forgive Miriam when she was punished by God for accusing him. Moses came down from where he was treated as the highest and learned to lower himself through being humble and poor, he learned how to become obedient. K. Arthur, the co-founder of Precept Ministries International, described gentleness as the driving force behind taking the right actions without reacting right away when we are disappointed. Reacting right away and not reacting right away. How about you? Do you get angry right away when you hear a person speak ill of you? How do you react when you are disappointed or when you failed at something? Do you react in a rage? Do you do everything you can to resolve the matter immediately or do you wait quietly for the Lord? God tempers us to make us gentle through circumstances in our lives, wishing that we all learn to become gentle through tempering. I will see you next from Refining Faith. Goodbye.
Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.